you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 25 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. Myself, Mark Tottenham Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. Mark, quarter of a century. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Would you believe it? It, it feels just, like we've just come into the room, doesn't it? Absolutely, yes, yes. Wow, OK. Well, last week, Mark, you will recall we talked to Solicitor and Senior Counsel Bill Houlihan, mm-hmm. uh, in particular about mediation, but we very much enjoyed his war stories from the front yeah, line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wasn't he great? He was very good. And yeah. I know it went down a bomb with the solicitors. Mm-hmm. He's beloved of the solicitors out there and barristers as well, no doubt. Well, today we have yet another solicitor on the show, this time from the world of planning and environmental law. Fred Logue has developed a reputation as the man to go to if you want to challenge a development. Recently, the Sunday Times described him as David to the development lobby's Goliath. How about that for a billing? Uh, We're going to talk to him about judicial review and planning law and how he thinks the new planning and development bill is going to affect the future of development. But before we get to that, let's discuss three cases that you have identified from the Decisis website. We're going to start with a planning decision from the Supreme Court, a decision of the Chief Justice. Mr. Justice Donald O'Donnell. This concerned that beloved public amenity on the south side of Dublin, the Hellfire Club. This is the case of Hellfire Massey Residence Association versus Onboard Planola. Uh, Mark, though a bit of a technical decision, this concerned the ongoing row about the proposed visitor centre up beside the Hellfire Club. Yeah, this was a very interesting case because um, the, basically the, the High Court heard the challenge to the to the permission for the visitor centre. And during the course of the hearing, it was the judge was persuaded that certain secondary legislation needed to be referred to the Court of Justice of the European Union. And this is a fairly standard procedure. Uh, courts at a number of different levels are entitled, if they're uh, dealing with issues of EU law, to make a reference to the Court of Justice and they get guidance from the court. But what happened here was that Mr Justice Humphreys, having made the reference to the Court of Justice, proceeded to hear the rest of the case and made a determination without getting the the answer back from from Luxembourg from the Court of Justice, and so the appeal was, and and he he refused to quash the planning permission for the the visitor centre, so that decision was then appealed up to the Supreme Court. How could he have made the final decision without getting the answer back from from the Court of Justice? But the Supreme Court upheld that decision and said that in this particular case, it wouldn't matter what answer came back from the okay, Court of Justice. Okay, that wouldn't have changed anything. It wouldn't have changed anything, and therefore... Well, the, that's the very refusal. significant. Yeah. Okay, yeah, okay very good. Okay, well, next to a circuit criminal matter, which ended up in the High Court, this is the case of Connors versus the Director of Public Prosecutions, a decision of Mr Justice Simons. Uh, this concerned a judicial review challenge to a sentence which had been imposed after the judge had refused to adjourn the sentence hearing. That's the judge in the circuit criminal court. The accused apparently had pleaded guilty to burglary, I believe. Uh, His barrister was new to the case and said, listen, can I have a few moments to discuss things with my client, I think? Uh, But the judge said, no, we're not giving you a short adjournment and proceeded to sentence uh, the accused. And Mr Justice Simons wasn't happy about this at all. 
Yeah, the, the odd thing about this is it's, it's like the, the law of consent adjournments is is a, the sort of specialization of, of, of every barrister in their first couple of years. Um, but this is a case where the, the consent adjournment was not accepted by the court. The... Um, it, it was a sentencing hearing. There'd been a plea of guilty. And as you say, the barrister who was new into the case simply said, I need some time to consult with my client. And the circuit court judge said, no, we're going to proceed. He proceeded to give him a sentence of three years imprisonment for, as you say, burglary and the theft. So serious of, stuff. Absolutely. The theft of 5,000 jury. No, a serious sentence and serious offence. Um, but Mr. Justice Simon said no, in the circumstances he should have given him some time to consult. And, and, and I kind of recall a decision from Mr. Justice Simons, I think we did on the previous show, or was it mm-hmm. the show before that, where he wasn't happy about a, a judge intervening and asking too many questions and helping guards with their evidence, etc. So That's he, right. he's, he's, he's making sure that when justice, criminal justice is done, it is done properly. Exactly. Uh, absolutely. Okay, well, uh, finally, to a challenge to a decision of the Mental Health Tribunal, which came before the Court of Appeal. This is the decision of FC versus the Mental Health Tribunal, a decision of Ms Justice Unani Raffertig. Uh, and the court held that in making its determination, the Mental Health Tribunal had focused on expert evidence, but had failed to give proper consideration to the patient's evidence. Yeah. Yeah, so this is concerned. This is a a challenge to what they call a renewal order. So when you're detained as an involuntary patient, in other words, somebody who has effectively been compelled to 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 be detained in, in uh, under the mental health legislation, um, you then get periodic renewal orders, and these are determined by the mental health tribunal. And so obviously the mental health tribunal has to cons- consider certain evidence. Um, they generally consider the medical evidence, but in this case, as in many cases, they will hear from the patient themselves. And the patient here said that they didn't need to be detained on an involuntary basis, that they would be prepared to take their medication uh, on a a voluntary basis, while the medical evidence was that they didn't have the capacity or the insight to do so. And the the mental health tribunal made their decision, but only referred to the medical evidence in their decision. And what the court said here, that the High Court, has to be said, accepted that decision. But in the Court of Appeal, Ms. Justice Neil Rafferty said no, that once the evidence had been given by the patient, even effectively, even if it was dismissed in one line in the decision, if they but said it had, to be considered. it had to be considered, and the fact that they hadn't at least addressed the fact that evidence was given by the patient said that they hadn't given proper reasons for their decision, and therefore it was set aside. A fundamental fair procedures Absolutely. argument. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, back shortly with solicitor Fred Logue. Silence in the fifth court. Okay, it is my great pleasure to welcome to studio Fred Logue. Uh, Fred, I was reading a Sunday newspaper recently where they described you as David to the development lobby's Goliath. You're an, an environmental and planning lawyer and you've been involved in a number of judicial reviews and we're going to talk about those in great length later in this broadcast. But can I start with your background? You have a very interesting background. You, you didn't study law at all, you didn't? No, I studied science in college. Um, in UCD, actually. And I got a first-class honour in maths, physics, and experimental physics. And I did a PhD in Trinity. And I worked as an engineer for about 10 years. And uh, during the dot-com boom, which is kind of distant history now, I lost my job in America. And I was kind of scratching around trying to figure out what to do. And my wife, who does have a law degree but isn't a lawyer, said I should study law because she thought I'd be good at it. So I took the FE1s at night. And obviously... 
to be a solicitor, you don't need a law degree, you just need a degree. So I passed those and studied in Griffith College. And then I, you know, you have to, you have to, at that time, I'm not sure now, but you had to quali- get a pra- traineeship within five years. Yes. So the time is running out and it's kind of going, will I do it, will I not do it? So I rang up A&L Goodbody and said, will you take me on? Can so I you went straight student? to the top. I did. We keep talking about Orson Welles on this show, but that was kind of, you know. Well, I, did, I was probably you, you a little bit like doing I, a bit I, of, I didn't know a, there at the time. A bit of ground hurling down in the district court or something. Did you not think that was more suitable for, uh, for starting out? Well, they had an ad in the paper and I, I rang up and I started a month later. Very good. And, and how did you feel about saying cheerio to the world of science? Or maybe you haven't. Maybe you haven't. Maybe we can say that you're, that, you know, science, I, I always think there's a mathematical aspect to law. But, you know, leaving a career in science and going into law, was that a big deal? A big, you know, mental shift for you? Uh, no, I hated it. So, and I was useless at being an engineer or scientist. And I found when I was doing the studies... Even though you had a PhD in maths physics? Yeah, I liked it as a hobby, but I didn't like it as a job. And okay. when I did the Griffith College courses, I loved constitutional law. I had David Langwalliner as the lecturer, and he just he just kind of opened my eyes to stuff that we never learned in school and never thought possible. So all the big cases, McGee, Ryan, etc., show that people, ordinary people, could kind of change the world through legal process. And it was amazing. I just I was just blown okay. over by it. So you were motivated by that. Okay, yeah. so you went down to A&L Good Bodies yeah. on the Keys. And what happened there? Uh, I worked with uh, primarily with John Whelan in IP and Vincent Power, Alan McCarthy in the competition. And I was exposed. I, IP being intellectual property. Intellectual for our property. non-lawyer listeners. Exactly. <laughs> so I was working on some fairly big cases. There was a copyright case, Coger, and a competition case, a merger between... Heineken and Scottish Newcastle, which involved Beamish and Crawford and Cork and Murphy's. And I, I really enjoyed it. I, it's a, it was a great place to work and to train because the quality of the work is incredible. And I keep that with me today. Like I, I owe a lot to A&L Goodbody. They, they, they kind of made me what I am in some in some respects. Very good. And um, But but I'm, I'm curious when I think about kind of constitutional law, and maybe this is my own bias, but sometimes people who are interested in constitutional issues, they want to be a barrister more than a solicitor. That might sound very unfair to my our solicitor listeners out there. Why, why solicitor? Why didn't you go with the barrister route? Uh, well, for the basic reason that to train as a solicitor, you can get paid as a trainee. So you wanted a job. I needed a job. I had three kids. So it, there wasn't an option of not getting paid. And luckily enough, the pay, even at that stage, was quite good for the, for the big firms. So, as he, you know, obviously wasn't the same as getting paid as, as a full-time engineer, but it was enough to survive on and uh, I didn't have to, um, you know, basically go out raw and start from scratch. Okay. I was okay. part of a part of an organization. But you did leave the mothership mm-hmm. and you went out on your own. So, when did that happen? Well, there was a, there was a step in between. So, uh, when I finished my traineeship in A&L around 2008, 2009, my wife got a job in Brussels. So we went off to Brussels for five years and I was kind of knocking around and we came back in 2014. So at that stage, I was probably about 43 and I reckoned I was fairly much unemployable at that stage. So I thought it would be easier to set up my own firm than actually try and get a job. So I set up FP Logue uh, I, I, in the, on the 14th of December 2014. And my first case was an access to information case. So I was I was working with a guy called Gavin Sheridan. While yes, I was Viz Legal. Viz Isn't that Legal right? Yeah, and Right to Know. And are you users of Viz Legal? 
Uh, I'm not, but maybe Mark <laughs> is. Well, 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 the law library does have a subscription to it, so we all have access to it. I highly recommend it. Yeah. it. And there's a, there's, hmm. a, there's a premium subscription as well, so you we can follow your hmm. own cases. Wow, there's, that's, that's our first ad, I think, <laughs> on, on the show. Is it, uh, is, is it paid for? But anyway, there you go. Sorry, please, Fred. Uh, so we did, we did a few kind of high-profile cases. One was access to the, the famous Trite letter, which was a threat from the European Central Bank. Jean-Claude. Jean-Claude, the man threatening to uh, send in the ECB if we didn't use the, the National Pension Fund to bail out the banks. And there was another one, the NAMA access to information case, which was kind of the, one of the first big uh, access to environmental information cases, which went all the way to the Supreme Court and is today one of the seminal judgments on access to environmental information. So I was kind of helping Gavin with that and kind of building up a profile so my first case was called Minch versus the Commissioner for Environmental Information, which is about access to uh, environmental information about the National Broadband Plan. And, you know, luckily enough, I didn't make a complete hames of it. Uh, we won in the High Court and we won in the, in the Court of Appeal as well. And through access to... And what were you seeking to achieve in that case? It was your first case, so what were you after? What, what, what was the result? Well, the issue was whether or not uh, information about the National Broadband Plan was what could be classified as environmental information, which means that it comes within a special EU kind of FOI rule, which is uh, which has fewer restrictions than Irish FOI. So if it does come within that, it makes it easier to get. Uh, but it has to be about the environment. And it was a kind of an underutilised form of access to information at the time. Um, and a, a lot of public bodies were denying that they had to give access or denying that information was environmental so these are kind of the threshold jurisdictional issues around accessing environmental information. So uh, it, again, that the Minch case is one of the kind of key cases for what is environmental information. Um, it, like it took five years for him to get the information, but whether or not, I, I, I don't know whether or not it was useful, and, but it established a very important... I know Mark reason. wants to come in, but Minch, was Minch a representative for a wider body? No, he was just an individual. Just an individual, with okay. With an interest in it. And, and uh, I mean, you're obviously in, in other environmental I information cases, but I mean, have the have the systems improved in terms of the state providing that information or do you still need find that you need to, to sort of fight every case? Uh, yeah, well, it, they are improving. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of a fairly hard slog, uh, but luckily there's good, uh, there are good procedures in place to try and enforce it. So we have a Commissioner for Environmental Information where, which is an independent uh, administrative adjudicator. Uh, and then the entire system is kind of supervised by what's called the Aarhus Convention Compliance Committee in Geneva. So I forgot to say that access to environmental information is the first pillar of the Aarhus Convention. Uh, so if there's systemic issues with accessing environmental information in Ireland, a member of the public can make a complaint to Geneva about those issues. And there's an independent body called the Compliance Committee, which will make a decision on whether or not Ireland complies. And I think, I think, just for, again for the benefit of our li listeners, the Aarhus Convention is is a very peculiar beast, we say, because it means that for certain environmental cases, you you as a private individual should not face any cost penalties for bringing environmental actions. Isn't that right? Yeah. So it's part of it. So the the Aarhus Convention has its origins in the environmental democracy movement of the 1970s. So in particular, the Stockholm Declaration, which, which established these three principles, access to information, public participation in decision-making affecting the environment, and access to justice. So access to information is, is two, two limbs to access to information. 
the primary one actually is public bodies are supposed to actively disseminate environmental information. So putting your planning file online or whatever. And then they're supposed to give you access to information if you request it. So then public participation is mandatory for decision making, which has a likely significant effect on the environment. So, for example, big projects or projects in sensitive areas. Um, So in Ireland, a housing project over 500 or 400 houses or 500 houses, it's mandatory to do an environmental impact assessment. So you you have a right to basically be able to get the file, put in your observation and have that taken into account. And then the third limb is access to justice. So the principle here is that there's a kind of an alignment between the individual right to an effective remedy and judicial protection under EU law and a kind of a broader public interest in environmental protection. So most cases that I take are planning environmental cases. There's a kind of overlap between an individual's rights and the public right of environmental protection. And actually, sometimes there's no individual right. It's a purely public interest case. So the, there's various there's various um, types of access ju- to justice which are mandatory under the convention, and both Ireland and the EU are, ma- are parties. But there's a kind of an overriding uh, there's an overriding standard of access to justice, which is that there must be uh, adequate uh, remedies, uh, there must be fair and equitable procedures, and costs cannot be prohibitively expensive. <clears throat> and so, that so, in- so in practical terms, I mean, what you, you've you've outlined the principles, but in practical terms, does Ireland meet those kind of standards, or do, do you find that you're fighting all of those different limbs at various different stages? Uh, well, Ireland had traditionally had uh, a very open public participation predating our house, so mm. anyone can make an observation on any planning file anywhere in the country. Mm. Uh, it it had an open, in principle, justice system, so there's very few kind of standing barriers to taking a case. So once you've made an observation, you can take a judicial review. Sure. It's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So so can I can, can I change things just a little mm-hmm. bit, Fred? So as you say, you started out, access to information was kind of your, your main modus operandi at that stage. Mm-hmm. But you have now developed into a, a person, environmental and planning law, and you're, you're, you're well known for taking judicial review challenges to developments around the country. Mm-hmm. Okay. So first of all, how did you get into that aspect? How, how did your, your career develop in that direction? Uh, well, when you do access to environmental information cases, you meet people involved in the environmental movement. So I got to know those people. And there was a case in Dunleary, I'm not sure if you remember, a proposal to build a cruise terminal in, the, in sure. Dunleary Harbour. So I, I think maybe actually a barrister, one of your colleagues, brought me into the case to challenge that for a group of locals called Save Our Seafront. And luckily it was conceded by the board. We won the case. And then, then you just it just builds up then through word of mouth. Um, the other really significant one was, uh, and can I just ask you? So, is are you saying that this kind of area of law found you rather than you being the crusader that maybe people think you are and, and wanting to get in here and wanting to challenge? So, was it just that it kind of organically developed? Absolutely, yeah. Well, wow, okay. I started off to do IP and technology, <laughs> uh, and ended up here. Very Don't good. ask me how I got here. Yeah, but I can I can t- totally say it wasn't planned. Yes, okay. It, it just kind of organically grew, as you put it. Um, and I kind of went with it. I ran with it. Okay. And when you read a newspaper headline which says, you know, you are David to the developer's Goliath, okay, and you are the guy who's taking on development. I mean, what do you think about that? It, it, do you see yourself in that sort of role? Uh, well, it definitely is a David and Goliath. So in all my cases, we're taking on a public body, usually Borpanala, the state itself, 
and usually a very big developer. Uh, so even at first, it's one v three in most of my cases. The second thing is we ha- my clients usually have the, the least resources. We're little individuals or residence associations and things like that. Uh, so, but as Mark was talking about, there are special rules for costs in environmental litigation in Ireland, which mean that if you if you lose your case, you don't have to pay costs to the winning side. But if you win your case, you can recover your cost under the normal rules. And that basically allows individuals who would otherwise not be not be able to afford, and this includes developers, people forget, it benefits the man in the street, the Joe Bloggs, but also benefits developers. So, you know, the costs in Ireland are so high that most people can't take a judicial review. So, so it, it, it actually benefits everybody in the system. Uh, the kind of man in the street gets all the grief. But actually, if you look at it, there's lots of developers taking judicial reviews. Uh, one in four development plans at the moment is being judicially reviewed by developers and landowners. Nobody talks about that. So there's eight, at least eight county development plans currently under challenge by landowners and developers. So, and that's the, 10 times the rate of planning applications, which is about 2 or 3%. So it's 25% in development plans. Okay, so so, and I, I, t- I take your point. Um, the fact that people have access to justice, and mm-hmm. I mean, we all have understood. We, we all have been in situations where people are terrified of going into the high court. They have a really good claim, but they're terrified of an order for costs against them, and that prohibits them from taking and uh, you know getting the rights that they're entitled to. But on the other hand, on the other hand, is it not a charter for people who just want to have a go, who are difficult crackpots, people who just want to object and make noise? I mean, is 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 that? Does it allow that, allow for that? Because people don't have to worry about having to pay costs if you know their their objection isn't well founded. No, but we only get paid if we win. So why would we take a case that that couldn't succeed? So there's actually kind of a benefit to a, you know a no fall no fee or kind of contingency model, in that there's a kind of natural selection bias in favour of good cases. So there aren't like if you look at it, there aren't any crackpots. Yeah, the, the object. Like I, I don't have to say there aren't any. The OPR Office of Planning Regulator has done a very detailed survey of judicial review of planning cases in the last five or ten years. And actually, if you look at the cases, they're all fairly substantial. So, so what actually happens in reality is, you know, there's a lot of PR saying crackpots are tech. You know, people are winning cases on technicalities. But the actual reality, if you look at the hard data and the actual cases, is that that isn't actually happening. That good cases are being taken. And that unlawful decisions are being quashed, which is what judicial review is supposed and to do. Does that extend to unrepresented litigants as well, where, where lay litigants bring cases? Or do you think there are some crackpot cases or do they get filtered out at the leave stage? Uh, there's virtually no lay litigant cases in right. the planning list that I'm in. I can't think of, there's maybe one. That's one out of 100. So it's, right. it's a tiny, tiny fraction. Sure. Okay, so let's, let's talk about some of the objections, Fred. Um, like... You know, environmental impact, that's a very broad church, isn't it? Yeah. So, firstly, well, firstly, it's a legal obligation, right? So, uh, there's a requirement to at least examine whether or not there would be significant effects on the environment. And if it is a likely significant effect, you have to do a detailed study. So, that's part of being a member of the EU and part of the Aarhus Convention. Uh, So, in general, though... It doesn't, ha- it doesn't actually determine the decision. The decision just has to examine what the significant impacts are and take a decision in light of those. Uh, 
And it's supposed to build in things like mitigation measures to try and reduce or avoid the harm. But just because there's a significant effect on the environment doesn't mean you can't grant planning permission. That's kind of a, a, a misunderstanding of the system. Now, there is an exception if there are habitats that are very sensitive species that can be a ground. Or this is the famous natter jack toad, for example, all those years ago in Kerry. I mean, there's loads of them. Uh, well, it's in Ireland, it's bats and otters are our friends <laughs> okay. and uh, cetaceans, so whales and dolphins. Um, and they have strict protection under EU law. But isn't everything an environmental impact? I mean, if I, if I build one house, you know, that's going to mean an extra car on the road. You know, it's going to mean more emissions into the, the air. I mean, you know, everything is an environmental impact, isn't it? Of course, yeah. So, but the law really only applies where there's significant environmental impacts. So that's it's, it's, there's a difference between any impact and a significant impact. And all the law requires is really that you do an assessment in general. And is there an issue now? I mean, obviously, the, 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 you know, we're, we're at a time of massive housing shortage. There's a, a, a crisis going on. And there's certainly an impression that uh, the level of housing that the country needs is being held up by judicial reviews. And where, do you, first of all, I suppose, do you think that's a problem? And secondly, where do you think the problem lies if it is? Uh, well, again, that's just a mis- misconception. The data doesn't support that. So if you actually look at where the delays are, uh, the, the major, firstly, the biggest, the biggest group of um, housing is underutilized buildings, existing buildings. There's hundreds of thousands of houses in Ireland that are not being used for housing. So that's the big. That's number one. Number two is then developers who won't develop. There are seventy thousand extant permissions that could be started tomorrow that aren't being built. seventy thousand. Something like seventy thousand, Jim. Then after that, there's decision makers who won't make decisions. So the board has about 35,000 units pending before it. So when you add all that up together... 35,000 uh, decisions that haven't the, the board hasn't yet made well, a decision applica- on. Housing units that are, I'm right. not sure the number of, decision, number of applications. Hmm. So when you add all that up, that's about 350,000, 400,000 houses. Hmm. So that's like five or 10 years supply. The number in judicial review is about 10,000. And if you factor in the, the kind of overall success rate of about 80%, uh, it, it comes to a very small number, maybe two or 3,000 in total that are actually being delayed by judicial review. Success rate, sorry, you mean 80% of judicial rev- reviews are successful or aren't successful? Uh, in the SHDs, the big housing developments, right. more than 80% succeeded in quashing the, the planning permission. Right. And where is the problem there? I mean, in terms of the decision making, is it the environmental issue or are there other issues that are are causing the main problems. Yeah, the biggest, there was a couple of issues and there were kind of, just kind of structural issues and then kind of practice, you know, how the, how the decisions were made. So the structural issue, firstly, was these were really unpopular. <laughs> so people were motivated to object to them and they were motivated to challenge them because they were, they were unpopular. And one, part of the reason they were unpopular was because the applications routinely proposed a material contravention of the development plan. So development plan is what, you know, what the council, yeah. councillors, the public develop as a kind of environmental contract, it's been sort called. template for development. Yeah, so it says this kind of development here, this density, this height, you know, all and, that kind of stuff. And you're saying it always has to be a substantial breach, not a technical breach. Is that what you're saying? Well, for, for yeah, so... Um, to be successful in a judicial review, you're, you're saying that it generally doesn't come down on technical grounds. It's more, it's more substantive grounds. Is that what you're saying? Well, it, t- it depends what you mean by technical ground. Like one man's technical ground is another man's substantial ground. Okay. So, so uh, our house requires uh, both procedural and substantive legality to be reviewed in judicial review. 
So procedural reality, uh, legality is, you know, did you put up the notices? Does the application conform to the specification? Did you have the right maps, the right documents? Did you tell people about it? Were they allowed to make a submission? Did you take the submission into account? Substantive legality is things like, did you do the environmental assessment? Did you give reasons for the environmental assessment? Did you, um, you know, did you have regard to relevant factors, irrelevant factors, things like that? So, so you like, so I, the, I suppose so, what, I'm, what I'm trying to get at here, Fred, is that, I mean, obviously, as Mark says, at a time when we need houses, we need houses built. And of course, there are development plans and they must be complied with, of course. Uh, but it may be the case that a development is, you know, marginally out and they're matters that can be rectified relatively easily. Uh, are, are there kind of substantial contraventions that mean you need to go to the High Court, hold the thing up and stop it? Yeah, well, I'll give you a few examples. So there's one, recently we won in Our Ladies Grove, uh, student accommodation. So the the um, the issue there That's was... That's Belfield, isn't it? It's not too far away. Yes. So the issue there was that the the developer didn't actually put in any details of the daylight in the kitchens. So the... the which is and is a requirement to have a certain standard of daylight, or if it doesn't meet the standards, to have something to compensate for it, and the board is supposed to assess that. But there, but there wasn't enough information, particularly on the kitchens, to know whether or not it met a particular standard. But, but who's bringing the complaint there? Because it can't, it's unlikely that the objector is going to be suffering the effect of lack of daylight in the kitchens. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's what I explained. Mm. There's, a, there's a kind of an overlap between environmental mm. protection and individual yeah. rights. So yeah. that's, that's, that is, that's by design, not by accident. Mm. The system has been designed to do that yeah. because the, environmental, the environment can't go to court. Yeah. So if you look at EU law, it consistently says, in fact, that, it, that this merging of individual and public interest rights is what... It's what's supposed to happen. So the public are supposed to in, enforce environmental law. Uh, and even Mr. Justice Humphreys in Atlantic Diamond has said, some, like somebody who isn't ever going to live in somewhere is still allowed to complain about you know, poorly lit buildings because yeah. those buildings are going to be there for 100 years. Yeah. So you, know, you don't have to find the person who hasn't even moved in yet to, to yeah. complain. The, the society as a whole benefits from having high, good quality housing. So the, like, the problem we have is like a housing is a unit. It doesn't matter where it is or what quality it is. It's not about numbers. It's about, it's as much qu- qualitative as quantitative. Yep. So if, if our focus is just on quantity over quality, there's going to be a problem because whatever about a housing crisis, which I, I don't really believe it's a, it's, a, it's a crisis in that sense, we do have a climate crisis and we have a biodiversity crisis and they're real crises and they're actually happening and we know they're happening and we have to do something about it. So building like car-dependent buildings building buildings that have huge carbon embodied in them with concrete. Uh, all of that stuff is going to lock in huge kind of environmental consequences for a generation. Or, or it'll, it'll, it'll be a waste of resources. We'll build buildings that can't be used in 20 years. But what about the generation who can't get a house, Fred? This is the point. I mean, obviously just don't build throw-up houses. We're not saying that. But I mean, you know, objections that are, that are stopping the building of houses, certain estates in, in various different parts of the country, and, and that has happened. Now, maybe they're on good grounds, and I'm not saying that they're not on good grounds, but there is competing rights here. The right to have a home, to be able to afford a home that you know that you can buy, that's built in accordance with building regulations, obviously. Uh, and then the right of somebody who's walking by to say, well, actually, I don't think that's a really good development. I'm going to object to that. You, you know, have you ever, you know, in South Park, where they have the <laughs> underpants sketch... 
where no, they please, have, please tell us, please tell <laughs> us. Where they have underpants, question mark, money or profits. So objections don't stop houses being built. Hmm. They stop planning for missions. The, the, there's a, the connection between planning for mission and house is, is broken. We know, we know that for a fact. So as I said, there's 70,000 permitted units, mostly in Dublin, that aren't being built. So, so it's not really anything to do with objections or judicial reviews. In fact, judicial reviews are, are kind of preventing really bad quality uh, housing that, should, that shouldn't be built from being built. And it's doing that quite consistently. And again, it goes back to issues like, um, tr- uh, is there a public transport serving it? Uh, is there good daylight? You know, are you going to chop down all the trees in an area? Are you going to use up all the green space in an area? And these are things that are in the development plan and that... The, so they're all valid considerations, yeah. in, in fairness, and I, I hear you saying that. Now, when you started out taking these cases, you had a, a certain piece of legislation in play, but the government has changed that and has brought in a new Development and Planning Bill, or Act 2022. Is that is that in effect at the moment? Uh, no, it's, it's actually a draft bill at the moment. Draft bill at the moment, yeah. OK. But that's going to change things, isn't it? And it has been brought in in order to try and speed up the building of houses and creation of homes for people. Uh, yeah, well, that's the headline. Um, like, undoubtedly, there are issues, right? There's is- there, is- there are issues at the planning level. So development plans aren't detailed enough, for example. And the, you know, so you zone a field uh, and that's it. How, do you, how many houses do we put in it? How, how tall? You know, where do the shops and schools go? So, you know, our, our history has been kind of build housing estates in the, f- the next field and keep building them without thinking about how people move around you know, this idea of the 15-minute city is still kind of quite mm. quite odd. So undoubtedly, there's an issue with detailed uh, urban design and layout because we don't really have much public control over land in Ireland. It's all kind of uh, to be done kind of in negotiation or agreement with developers, and that's a problem. So there, there's stuff in there to kind of deal with that, which is quite positive. Um, the kind of public participation layer, I think, is more or less the same. Uh, and then they've they're proposing quite swinging attacks on access to justice. Yes, judicial perception. reviews, trying to, you know, mm. reduce the number of judicial reviews. Yeah, well, you reduce judicial reviews by making good decisions. Yes, So absolutely. a good decision can't, isn't reviewed. <laughs> I agree, <True>. I agree. <laughs> I absolutely agree. Um, and there will always be the possibility of judicial review, isn't there? You just have to exhaust all the processes before you get to the, the point where you can go to the High Court. Uh, well, again, like the, the, the Aarhus Convention requires wide access to justice. So, like, judicial review is a reality. So we can't really just say we don't want it or we don't like it. We have to, It's there. It's part of the system now. And there's just no getting away from it. Second thing is, if you look at the planning system in the last five years, judicial review was the only bit that actually worked properly. It quashed unlawful decisions at scale. Uh, and it did so fairly efficiently. Get a case on within seven to nine months and get a judgment two months later. So that's, that's a phenomenal amount of time in our system. Hmm. Uh, a lot of the delays came from objections around costs and preliminary stuff that were completely outside the control of the applicant. And um, we, we kind of achieved a bit of legal cert- certainty on costs in November with the Heather Hill judgment. And then suddenly the government decides it's going to throw away what Mr. Justice Murray described as 13 years of litigation to get to a point where we actually understood costs to put in place something new, which is going to 
inevitably give rise to another as thirsty say, years. As you yeah. say, it's a bill, so we have to see how that plays out. Fred, unfortunately, we, we're being beaten by the clock here. And uh-huh. before we go, before we go, we have to ask you a very important question. Mark, do you want to ask the question? Uh, certainly, <laughs> yes. The, well, you, you know what the question is, uh, Fred. Uh, do you have a book or a film or other work of art to recommend to our listeners? Well, I have a book and a film, if I'm oh, absolutely, yep. uh, The book is Ruan McCormick's... You've already said South Park, so anyway. <laughs> well, that, that's not a film. I don't think that qualifies <laughs> as a film. Okay. <laughs> but the, uh, the book is Ruan McCormick's Supreme Court. Very it's good. a brilliant, very accessible read. And it, mm-hmm. you know, it discusses the dynamics of a court and how it can influence society, uh, which is brilliant. It's a really, really good it's book. It's an extraordinary book. Isn't yeah. It? And then the film is Spotlight which is a... The Boston Globe case, isn't it? Yeah, but it's interesting. There was a lawyer in it, played by Stan Tukey, who, and he was a kind of an outsider. So, so it was about Catholic and Boston, which are, you know, a bit like Ireland. The church was the establishment. Yeah. But, and he, so he came in to represent the victims as an Armenian. And he says, you know, I'm the outsider. I can only do this because I'm an outsider. But it also shows the importance of the media uh, in communicating what's going on. So, like, I, de- I represent journalists, I work with journalists, and I talk to journalists a lot. And particularly for people like my clients, who are the, kind of the weaker part of the scheme, they don't have PR, they don't have med- a media organization. So, I have to kind of advocate for them as well. So, luckily, we have a very good media here, mainstream and kind of, you know, alternative media. So, I, you know, particularly Mary Carolyn, Ellen O'Riordan, Keenan Brennan, the Ditch guys, you know, so it's really important... The, the ditch, is ditch. It? yeah, Roman Shortall, whose father right. is a senior counsel. Right. The ditch yeah. that was recently with the the junior minister, wasn't it, Damien? Was that the ditch? Was that they, they broke the story? They broke the Board Panala story. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. That's it. Uh, okay, Derek Shortall is is the father of Roman, who runs right. the ditch. Okay, we know Derek, and Derek's a yeah. senior counsel, very successful yeah. senior counsel. Absolutely, I know Derek well. Okay, I'm afraid I'm going to have to leave it there, okay, Fred. No Come here. Thank you for coming in. You've made your case very strongly. We had a little go at you there. Yeah, and no, you I felt well like it was under cross examination. You, you, you were well able for us. Well able for us. It was really good, really good, and a great insight. Fred Logue, thank you for coming in and being a guest on the Fifth Court. Thanks very much, gentlemen. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guest solicitor, Fred Logue, for giving us a fascinating insight into the law of planning and environment, and and environmental law. Mark, Hmm. what did you think of that? Did you enjoy it? I thought it was very interesting. He certainly set us straight in relation to this issue of whether judicial review is a massive problem in holding up development. And as he pointed out, there are so many other things holding up development and judicial review is really only a very small part of it. Yes, no, he made his case very strong. Really, really good interview. Uh, I very much enjoyed that. Uh, I would also like to say a big thank you to our producer, Cunnel O'Moroin, and to the Dublin South Podcast Studios and Lee Brennan, who we've kept late tonight. Mm. Uh, And fair play to you, Lee, for staying so that we could get this show out uh, and doing such a wonderful job in the way it was recorded. And if you have any comments or any legal stories, please give us a shout on the website. The website is there. We want to hear from you. Uh, And please share this podcast. Absolutely. On your WhatsApp groups and Twitter on LinkedIn anywhere where your friends or colleagues or anybody else who's interested in legal affairs might hear, hear about it please tell them about the show so for me Peter Leonard and myself Mark Tottenham thank you for listening and we'll see you very soon in the Fifth Court Never miss a vital Irish legal judgement check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. 
Visit decisis.ie to find out more.